Welcome to Coach to Scale, how modern leaders build coaching cultures. I'm your host, Matt Benelli. Join me as we build a community of like-minded professionals who share the belief that effective coaching improves the performance of every team member. Our mission is to help leaders become better coaches. The Coach to Scale podcast is sponsored by Coachem, the world's first AI coaching execution platform that leverages evidence-based coaching to increase quota attainment. And with that, let's get started. In his book, Atomic Habits, James Clear wrote, habits will form whether you want them or not. Whatever you repeat, you reinforce. And today's guest, he's been described as a visionary leader who knows how to execute, who knows how to focus and reinforce the right behaviors without looking at the scoreboard all the time. He spent 24, 25 plus years leading and inspiring at senior leadership levels at industry titans like Oracle, SAP, and Ceridian. Today, he's chief experience officer at the Middlefield Group. He's hailing out of the great white north in Toronto, but hiding on the beaches of Florida today. Mark Abode, welcome to Coach to Scale. Nice to be here, Matt. Thank you. Nice to have you again. Little inside joke. Uh, so, Mark, we'll get right into it. You've been doing this for a long time. You've, you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, but you also have seen some myths that have persisted. Eh, maybe that shouldn't. What is a myth out there about coaching salespeople or even sales leaders that you believe is misguided or maybe even a complete BS and waste of time? Well, you know, I mean, I would say I've always focused on what I think is the right thing to do. Um, and so I haven't worried about too much about myths and other things that other people do. It's kind of play your own game, right? But for me, you know, the big aha is like, is a lot of people manage the numbers and then manage a forecast as sales leaders. And that's not really what you're managing. You're managing people, you're managing behaviors, you're managing your culture. That's going to get you the outcomes, not looking at the scorecard. I think that's the biggest flaw that some sales leaders might have or new sales leaders. So, so too many, too many sales leaders, um, whether they believe they have to or not, like they, they feel compelled to focus on the result. We got to close the deal. We got to hit the number. Those are the those are the outcomes. Those are the results. What you've built a career on is focusing on behaviors, right? Focusing on playing the next play. It, it was there a, a a watershed moment, Mark? Was there like, when did you first recognize that focusing on the behaviors was the right way to go, despite all the pressure that's out there? Well, I would say, you know, when I joined Oracle Direct with you, Matt, back in the day, I had left running Canada for Oracle, and I probably ran Canada for Oracle in a fairly traditional way. You know, here's the, here's the forecast, here's the quarterly forecast, here are the deals, run the deals, and <clears throat> hey, nothing wrong with that. It's, it's good to learn. Um, but when I got to Oracle Direct, the scale was so enormous, so 1,500 people, tens of thousands of deals. You can't manage your way to an outcome deal by deal because there's too many deals. So you're really forced into managing behaviors. And so as you look at managing behaviors and what are people doing and how are they doing and helping them learn and develop, you realize that actually is where the game is. The game's not on the forecast sheet. The game's not on the, the result at the end of the quarter. I mean, as salespeople, as sales leaders, of course we have a number, and of course we have to meet or exceed that number. But the question becomes, how do you do that consistently? And it's not looking at the forecast sheet. 
It's talking to the people about what they're doing every day. And so for, for people listening, I mean, everybody has their own definition of this, but what's an example of focusing on a behavior that you know, others may, may not be thinking about? Like, you know, the, the, the result is closing the deal or getting the number, right? That's outside of our control. But what is the behavior or something in the, the salesperson's control or in the sales manager's control that you would put under the category of a behavior? Well, a behavior, like, for example, um, when I joined um, Inside Sales for SAP globally, we, as we talked about, we moved from a telephone-based organization to a digital selling motion-based organization. And with that, you know, you're doing different things. And so, you know, in the old days, it's leave voicemails and hope my voicemail is better than the competitor's voicemail. And, you know, right. it's a, it's a zero-sum game. Like, you're not really going to differentiate yourself. But we got on this track of a digital selling motion. So, so what it requires is people to do different things, like connecting with customers via video, via social, using digital tools. And we had probably 30-plus digital tools that we enabled our salespeople with to give great client experiences. So a great client experience isn't receiving a voicemail from your sales rep. A client experience is a two-way video that's compelling, that's interesting, that's motivational. So, so really looking at the things that a salesperson can do to differentiate themselves, like our digital selling motion, just open up a world beyond what was traditional. And so, so those, kinds of, those are kind of the behaviors I was talking about. And you successfully led this digital transformation of, of a large sales organization at SAP. Can you talk about that and, you know, the key components to the success of that transformation? Yeah. So, so you know, I was asked after running SAP Canada for six years uh, and pretty successfully, and I learned a lot. And I innovated where I could. And, you know, and I certainly brought my style of culture to every organization I led which was focused around the people, focused around development, focused around doing things better, creating an engaging culture. Of course, you have to produce the number, but when I got to, you know, I was given the assignment of inside sales for SAP, it was a global organization of about 500 people spread from Moscow to Buenos Aires to Singapore, you know, Bogota, you name it. And so quite a disparate organization, um, but there was, there were overlay inside salespeople using the telephone and marketing call lists. Like talk about a job that nobody really wants. That's the job that they had. And it was to boot, it was overlay. So you're actually only helping the real seller sell software and you weren't the real seller. So this is what I inherited, which was good and bad. It was good because it was as bad as you could imagine, right? So you couldn't get any worse. Can't fall right? off the floor as they say. Yeah, you know, people are, are you know, low morale, uh, low production, like, okay, so, it, you know, how, how much wrong, more wrong can you go? Well, you can't. So that was the opportunity. Blank sheet of paper. What do we want to do with this organization? So the, we did really three things. The first was I went back to the executive of SAP and said, look, you know, these 500 people are overlay. Uh, they're not adding value. They're not, you know, by their words, they're not adding value. And we can do better with this organization. So I'd like to have the mid-market for SAP globally, uh, you know, given to these people as the prime sales organization, owners of the mid-market. So remarkably, the company said, sure, why don't you do it? Because it wasn't really a, a market that SAP focused on. Our products weren't really geared for that market at the time. So, so when I came back to teams that, hey, look, 
you know, to everybody, like we're no longer helpers. You are prime salespeople. You own your own dirt. You own your own customers. You own your own number. It's not somebody else's number. It's your number. The, you know, you could have heard, heard the cheers around the world. It was, you know, the roof came off the buildings because that's what everybody wanted. They wanted to be real salespeople with real customers. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's number one. Now the question is, okay, now what are we going to do? Right. Now that we got it, we got to produce the number we're going to do. And we, we came up with this concept of a digital selling motion. So to differentiate ourselves, differentiate the experience our sellers could give our customers from our competition. The products are the products. We couldn't control the products. We could make the best we could of what the products that we had, but we can control the customer experience. We can control how we engage with the customer. So we created a digital selling motion long before, I think we were, there was no roadmap. There was no instruction manual. I, I didn't know anybody else doing it, but it just seemed like the right thing to do. So we all agreed that's what we're going to do. And then probably the linchpin to this whole thing was I, I took 25 people that were in sort of an analytics department and I reconverted that headcount to sales enablement. Like you got to train people and you got to support people. You can't you just share them some you know PowerPoints and say, hey guys, we're doing digital sell, sell, selling motion. Good luck. That's not going to work, right? So uh, we had 25, maybe more now, um, sales enablement, truly sales enablement. We, we hired people that were the best salespeople in the regions and made them sales enablement people because they had credibility and they had knowledge. And they had a, an appetite for innovation. So we created the 20, you know, 20 some odd person sales enabling organization. And that really sparked our progression in this digital selling motion and creating amazing customer experience and really changed the culture and the jobs that we had at SAP. Well, you're changing the culture from the top. And at the, when I introduced you, I talked about you as someone who's been described as uh, someone who's visionary but can also execute. And the vision was what you had for this team and the, this digital transformation. The enabling the salespeople is about the execution and the um, and the, the focus on using enablement to train them builds that consistency over time. At least that's the way I'm I'm watching this movie that you're describing. What you described with sales enablement is super different, at least in my experience, where you know, everybody's got their own definition. I mean, the, the job criteria for sales enablement differs from organization to organization. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, a lot of people would say they, you know, sales enablement's filled with the people who didn't quite like sales or weren't quite successful in it. And, that, and as a result, they have no credibility. You right. took really good salespeople in the different markets and that, that really had this passion, this affinity for, you know, leveraging technology, doing things differently. Um, that's changing the culture from the top. That's changing the game. How was that received by, let's say, that really good salesperson that's been there for a while, like the old dogs, new tricks type of person? Well, it, it gives them a career path. It gives them something meaningful to do because at that stage in their career, they're usually pretty good if they're around long enough and they want to do more. Like who doesn't want to learn and do more? Well, part of the learning process is helping other people learn. Like you can learn yourself, which is good, but there's a lot of satisfaction watching others learn and develop and grow. As you know, as a leader, that's what's the most exciting part of your job. So, so you know, part of what I did was I recognized good behavior, i.e., using the tools, selling the you know the right the digital selling motion way and that kind of thing. So, 
So recognizing uh, people for doing the right things, not recognizing people for a deal. Like, yes, we talked about results. Salespeople have numbers. You have to produce your number. I have to produce my number. That's just the way it goes. That's okay. But the focus from a leadership perspective was on the behaviors and the things that you needed to do to produce that number or exceed that number in a consistent way. So, you know, when I learned from Oracle Direct was that was where the money was, not in managing the forecast sheet. So we did more of that and attracted the kinds of people that also felt the same way. So so my town halls and, and all the recognition that I did was around recognizing good behavior, not the scorecard. So so what do, let's drill into that a little bit. What do you mean? Because usually what you see on the t- town hall or the all hands is, you know, at the end of the quarter, the people's name and lights are the ones who close the deals. When the senior leader, when Marco Boat comes into town, takes the top performers, i.e. the ones who closed all the business out to dinner, met with them personally. It's like, if you didn't close the deal, you weren't getting any FaceTime with the, with the big boss. What was different about what you did? Well, so, I mean, look, at the end of the day, you know, every, every town hall and every uh, quarterly, you know, meeting with the team, you got to throw the numbers up first. Like, that's, that's the scorecard. Like, how do we do? We're playing a game where the numbers count. So you want to do that. And the reason you want to do that, because hopefully they're good. But then you say, well, how do we make them good? Well, Mappinelli used a video for this customer and did it this way using these tools and produced a million dollar deal. Okay, Matt, awesome job, right? So you highlight the behaviors that led to the deal, not just the deal. Because people say, well, gee, I don't know. But people can control their behaviors. And if you're telling them, and you're saying, guys, like, and ladies, like, if you do these kinds of things, you'll get these kinds of outcomes. And that's a hard bridge to cross for some people. And age has nothing to do with it. I discovered that you think, you know, young people would be more affinitive, you know, have a more you know, acceptability of innovation. Not necessarily true. I had, of all ages, some people are just naturally going to try something new and others are more resistant. And that's okay. That's a human nature thing. They want to see somebody working. So, so, you know, you build in some slack for that, but still the expectation is you're going to get to good numbers using the tools and the innovations that we're providing, because that's how we get to, you know, consistent results. Mark, have you ever run across the person who's pretty damn good at their job, uh, salesperson, been in the role for a while, has had fairly consistent performance, and is a little bit like, uh, like I, I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do. I don't need to do that. Did you ever run across that situation? If so, how'd you handle it? Well, I ran across it a lot, and uh, and I was looking for those situations. I wanted to find those people, and and so, you know, part of my style is when I get to a town hall, any question goes, as long as it's professional, as long as it relates to you know the business. If you're not happy, if you're happy, whatever. Right. So I try to get people feeling comfortable, and I also try to provide transparency. You know, people want teamwork, people want trust, but you don't get any of that without transparency. So I was trying to be as very transparent as possible. And as a result, people got a little more comfortable with me in kind of saying, you know, what they really thought, which is what I want to know. I want to know what they really think, not what they just say. So you know, one example, and there's many, but one example, um, we had uh, a team in Scottsdale, Arizona, and the senior guy there Tom was a great salesperson, been around a long time, very successful, 
back of the room at the town hall. I could tell he wasn't really paying attention. I was pushing the tools and pushing the right. And I knew, like, he, he doesn't think I can see him. I can see him like a beacon. So after town hall, I kind of sashayed over and said, Tom, you know, how's it going? Oh, my God, Mark, great. I said, Tom, so what do you really think about this digital selling motion? He said, Mark, I got to tell you, I don't need it. I'm successful without these tools. I'm just doing the things I've been doing for a long time, and it works for me. So if these other guys want to use it, that's great, but I'm not using these tools. I said, okay, Tom, I get it. I understand completely. But do me one favor. Use one of the tools once. Just try one. Just one. And write me an email and let me know how it goes. If it goes terrible, I will, I'll leave you alone. He said, okay. So I went back to Toronto, and I don't know, two weeks, three weeks later, I wasn't expecting to get a phone call or anything. And I got an email from Tom. Mark, I got to talk right away. I said, okay, Tom. So we get on the phone. He said, Mark, you won't believe it. I pre-recorded this video. This We call them door openers. It's like a 90-second video that you send out to a customer. Um, and Tom said, I, 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 there was a customer that would not return a phone call, not an email. I could not get through. I really want to crack the account. So I sent him a 90-second door opener video. And he called back within an hour, and I got a meeting next week. So he said, I did two more videos. I sent them to two more clients who wouldn't talk to me, and they want to see me too. So now I got three appointments in a week that I could never get using the stuff that I was using the old way. So he became my biggest convert. So I said, okay, Tom, the next time I'm in Arizona, you got to tell the team what's going on here, right? So there, there were those kinds of people were everywhere, and I looked for those as opportunities, right? Because in my heart of hearts, I knew it would work, but I knew people that you know, have resistance to change. And so, so that was one example. And great example. It's someone who you didn't, you have to do it. You know, you didn't beat him over the head. It sounds no. like you approached him like a professional, you know, two, two, two guys talk and said, Hey, give, do me a favor. Like try it. Yeah. And, and, and Matt, to the point earlier, we're talking about is like, I didn't ask him for a, a deal. I didn't ask him for a number. I asked him to, to exhibit a different behavior. Try the innovations. Do different behaviors. You might get a better outcome. Because we did the math. I mean, we looked at the people who were using the tools and the people that weren't using the tools. And over time, the separation of results became just stunning. So, so you know, it's like you can't get there the old way. That way is dying out, right? So, so we, we, we had the empirical evidence to show that changing behaviors worked. So, so it's the old, what got you here is not going to get you there type of thing. And you had the data to show it, but you didn't beat people over the head necessarily with no. the data, but you, you were confident in continuing your way of doing things because the data supported it. You know, there's a lot of companies out there now that have invested that, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, and they have a tool stack that... They're not using. They're not right. seeing the benefit of it. I mean, I'm, I'm asking well, you to answer a hypothetical, but why? Why is that happening? Well, you know, here's what I'd say, Matt, is number one, most sales leaders are in the grind, right? Like it's a quarterly business. You know, the software business is brutal, like grow or die, right? So so it's, it's a tough go and you get caught up in the forecast and you got to cut, cut up in the deals as a leader. And that's all you really see right? That's all you really focus on. So it's like playing around the golf, you know, looking at the scorecard all for 18 holes, isn't going to make your golf any better, right? What you have to do is focus on the, the, you know, the behaviors and the skills that will produce a better golf game. So you want to have your teams focus on the skills and the behaviors 
that produce a better scorecard, right? So I don't, I don't need to be perfect. Like, you know, it used to be at SCP, oh, you have to have perfect execution. Like, who the hell's perfect? Like, like people lose deals. Like, that's okay if you have a nice pipeline. If you're doing all the right things and you got a decent pipeline, then you can afford to lose a few deals because you are going to lose some deals. So I think number one is people are focused on the forecast sheet and not on the behaviors. And the leaders that focus on the behaviors will have a better forecast sheet, but they can't, they're in this cycle where they can't get out of it. And in in the world that you were leading in uh, at SAP, where you had the help of enablement, how enablement was showing the teams how to use these tools, how important is it for the sales leader, let's just say that frontline manager, how important is it for he or she to know how to use those tools in addition to their, their reps, if at all? Well, you know, was I an expert in those tools? I would say not. Was I an expert on convincing people to use the tools? Yes, I was, right? So, but I think that the differentiation for me is, you know, yes, I talk to my sales leaders about the forecasts on a regular basis, obviously. But I also had as least as regular, if not more regular meetings with the sales enablement people. So when I went to town, I go to Barcelona, I'm you know, definitely going to meet with the sales leader, but I always meet with the sales enablement people. And I say, hey, how's it going? What are you doing? How can I help? What are you learning? And then in the town halls, I would, I would allow them to talk to the team about the things that they saw. So I put things on its ear like, most of these town halls are all about somebody talking about the big deal they closed. I would bring people to talk about the, the tools they used and the behaviors they had that created the deal. So I shifted the focus from the deal to the behaviors, right? And that was the sales enablement people. So I, I sort of put them on a pedestal and I hired really good people. I hired people that were dedicated and really loved helping others learn. And, you know, a sales leader, you only have so much time to put places. And if you shifted some of that time that you spent looking at the forecast sheet and looking at the things that people are doing and helping that, you'd have a better forecast sheet. And that's what I learned. I learned that, you know, in a little bit at Oracle Direct, but I certainly learned the lesson at, uh, at you know, commercial sales at SAP. So, Mark... Many companies are investing thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in tools, and they're not seeing the ROI. The, the tools aren't being used, and they're just not being adopted. Um, how did, how would, did you approach that from a, a process point of view? Yeah, I, you know, look, I mean, my personal opinion is there is a lot of good ideas in the world. Like there are a dime a dozen. And in my organization, right. I had a lot of people with a lot of good ideas, but a good idea well executed is a rare thing, right? And execution boils down to people doing things, people, you know, driving, doing the things that need to be done, right? For the outcome. So, so driving adoption became my mantra. I probably said that 1 billion times um, because they didn't really care about a good idea, only cared it was going to be adopted and had a result. Right. That's all. Right. So I was pretty democratic about innovation. I was pretty open to anybody that had a good idea. I didn't close good ideas down. Sometimes I don't even know if a good idea was good or not. So, well, why not test it out? Why not give it a shot in a pilot situation? So I ran a whole bunch of pilots and my lit litmus test was very simple. I went to the salespeople personally in the pilot and said, hey, Matt, did you like the tool? You know, Mark, well, it was okay. Well, did you sell anything because of the tool? Well, not really. Do you think, right? So I would, or Mark, this is unbelievable. 
Like my customers loved it. I'm using this tool every day. They'll tell you. So it was a pretty simple weeding out process for driving innovation um, into the organization. And then once we knew it worked, all I had to do was communicate to other salespeople that other salespeople were using it successfully to sell software. Who wouldn't want to use a tool that worked? What they didn't right. want to use is a tool that management said worked. They want a tool that the salespeople said worked. So I would highlight those salespeople on a hands call and say, Matt, tell the global team about how you use you know, a virtual studio to close your big deal. Mark, I'd love to, blah, blah, blah. So who doesn't want to learn from their peers? Everybody does. And then we developed what we call this black belt program. So every belt had different skills. And when you demonstrated the skills and got results with those skills, you moved up a color. So you went from yellow to green to blue to brown, et cetera. And in my quarterly meetings, we would highlight people who moved up a belt, i.e. demonstrated that they were using the skills. It wasn't about the deal. It was about yep. the skills. So, and, yeah. so, so just to clarify on that, um, because, I mean, people love to see progression, and that's why martial arts, why they have a system, right? It keep, keeps people longer. They see progress along the way, and they get recognized via the belt color uh, yep. and presentation and reward and certificate and all that for that progression. Was the belt based on uh, a, a specific tool and like I, I got this much functionality, so I'm an orange belt, and then I became a pro at that tool and I worked my way to a black belt in that tool? Or was a black belt someone who amassed proficiency in a multitude of tools? Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, so, so it was progression. So from white, you would all, everyone joined the organization, you start as a white, and we had, we had the criteria for each level. So it wasn't a mystery. It was you had to show mastery of these skills to yep. move to a yellow belt. And so, and, and that was adjudicated by the manager and a peer. So it was, you know, pretty transparent. And so it was very clear about what we wanted to see happen. And we based it all on successful people. People that use these tools were our best people. So as you moved up the food chain in these different color belts, you got recognized for it. You got to learn new skills. Everyone likes to learn. And they like to learn when you get a good outcome, right? So we're not just, you know, we're not a university learning history. We're learning skills that will pay off in your job. Okay, who doesn't like that? Everybody does. So, so we recognized them. People were learning and developing. It was a clear set of skills that we were expecting, including digital skills, et cetera. And, you know, the final pinnacle was you became a black belt, and there weren't that many of them. Mm -hmm. And the black belts were highly regarded. When I went to any location, I wanted to meet with the black belts right away. Like that was the number one is like, here are your top people. Not only like sometimes you meet with the top salespeople and yes, they sold a big deal, but they're not your best people. They're not going to do that over and over and over. I wanted people that could demonstrate and can consistently demonstrate using the skills and getting good outcomes. The black belts could. So we elevated them to a pinnacle where, you know, they got a lot of recognition and, you know, if a black belt entered the room, the room would go a bit quiet, right? It's like, okay, Matt's arrived. He's a black belt. He's yeah. been recognized as a black belt. We don't have, we have, none of us have to guess. He's been right. recognized and demonstrating the skills. So all to say, what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to put the focus on the behaviors, on the skills, right? Because that paid off for me. That, I mean, that's, uh, and I, you talked before about it, but how that leads to a greater tenure, 
people wanting to stay because they're learning. I, a question on that. I because philosophically, I think we're you know, we're spirit animals. We believe in a lot of the same things. When you say that people want to stay where they're learning and growing, is that everybody, or is that more uh, you know top performers, like high performers, want to stay in an environment where they're growing? Would you say? You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's it's just the kind of people that I identify with. But I feel like people that are lifelong learners will be your lifelong performers, right? And so if you said, hey, I've learned everything I need to learn, and now I'm done, I've, I've mastered all the skills, like, you know you're ahead of plateau and you're only going to go down because it's not just about you. The world's moving forward. You have to move forward at least as fast as the world and if you want to be good, you have to move forward a little faster than the world, right? Yeah. So those are the people that I thought would give me consistent results over time. If you're not growing, you're dying. So, Mark, uh, let's uh, focus on, on you a little bit more specifically. We, we just heard and learned from you for a while. Um, now you're, uh, you're the, cus- uh, the chief experience officer at the Middlefield Group. What does the Middlefield Group do, and what do you love about this cha- next challenge in your career? Well, you know, I mean, I've been one to try different things in my life, although I would say I was in the software business for a long time. So that's, you know, I mean, but a lot of different roles. But in this case, um, after finishing up SAP, I did a job at Ceridian for a while, helping a friend out, really. Uh, and at my stage, I'm only interested in helping people that I know. That's why I'm on this call with you, because I like you and I think you're great. And so I just spend time with people that I like Thank and you. people that, you know, that uh, that I think highly of. Um so a friend of mine came to me and he, uh, he runs a private asset manager in Toronto, small company, 40 people, and he wanted to transform it. It was running kind of a 1980s sort of business, very successful, you know, making lots of money, but, but he, younger guy kind of knew that, Hey, look, this isn't going to last forever unless we change and grow. Right. Right. right? So sounds familiar. So, sounds familiar. And we knew each other. And so. I went to work for him and basically helped transform his business to meet the challenges of the future. Now it's a small business and I kind of like that because I've been working for massive companies at scale for a long time. Right. And it's kind of fun to, to go and, and do, you know, cause it's a small company. So you do everything. So, so we did, you know, a new website, put the Microsoft in the cloud. We moved office space. We structured a marketing team. We structured a sales team, all those things that, you can do pretty quickly when the scale is small. So it's been fun. It's been fun to use kind of all the skills and more uh, that I learned at Oracle and SAP at Middlefield. And so when you, you know, from a private, you're a private asset management company, that personalized touch, that experience that, that Middlefield's clients have is probably something that differentiates it from the totally. pack, because there's a lot of people that can manage money. Uh, Absolutely. How do you make someone feel good about it? Yeah, yeah and, you know, it's it's like anything. Like a lot of times, you you focus on your products, and they have good products, long track record of of you know performance. Um, but it's not just about the product; it's about building relationships. Well, you don't do that with a product; you do that with people, right? And you do that with a great experience. So, chief experience officer bringing a client experience that differentiates Middlefield is as important as bringing products that differentiate Middlefield. So it's, you know, expanded beyond sort of our products are better it to, well, our service is better. Our people are better. You'll, you'll like working with us, right? We'll, we'll, you know, use, 
different avenues to give you information, right? All right, that kind of stuff. So, so it's all about creating an amazing customer experience. But I would also, Matt, another philosophy that I strongly feel is your customer experience starts with your employee experience. So if you take care of, as Sir Richard Branson says, if you take care of your employees, they'll take care of your customers. Yep. And sometimes you get a little caught up and, you know, too bad about the employees, you know, they're whatever, customer is a king. Well, the customer is king to a degree, but I think the employees might be the king and the customer is the queen or whatever. Like, you know, you got to invest in your people and they know when you're investing and they know when you care. And now you can be demanding. You could be demanding with the outcome, but you can even be more demanding if you also care and feed for them and respect them. So, so that's been a sort of another philosophy that's going parallel to the behaviors that really has paid off for me. Excellent. Thanks for sharing. Uh, do you need to be Canadian, uh, live in Canada to take advantage of middle, uh, middle fields? Uh, you don't services? No, you can be anywhere. I mean, we're headquartered in Toronto. Um, mm -hmm. but we, we were a B2B company. We're not, we, you know, it's not a B2C, it's a B2B. So we, we market the brokers who then go to their clients and put middle field products in their portfolio. So for example, you know, you've got utilities and you've got financial, you got tech, maybe you need real estate. So we will build out that part of the portfolio. So we work with with advisors to the, who work with their clients, right? Sure. And uh, yeah, we they can be any. We have a big operation in the, in the UK as well, in Canada. We certainly market in the US. Excellent. Um, so, Mark, as we cl close out, you're going to wreck a couple of rapid fire uh, questions. Um, one of them is the kind of the lessons learned question. So, what's a, a hard lesson that you learned uh, along the way? Uh, in your career, you know, something you learned, you know, you maybe stubbed your toe, banged your head against the wall. It was a little bit of an aha moment for you. Well, there's been a lot of them. Um, <laughs> I think of Lionel Messi. They, they, I heard him interviewed the other day and they said, Lionel, like, you know, tell, what's your philosophy about, you know, winning and stuff? He's well, he said, what, there, when you play a match, there's only two outcomes possible. You win or you learn. Those are the only two outcomes I care about. You win or you learn. So, I like to learn. And, uh, and so I guess, you know, when you ask the question is, I guess the biggest thing is I, I like to learn from other people. I don't have a specific person that is my role model for everything, but like a Bill McDermott, for example, when he gets on CNBC or he gets in front of clients, man, it's a thing of beauty. It's just so wonderful yeah. to watch. So I just, I just watch and I'll watch a CNBC episode of his like 10 times just to get the feeling of how does he do that? Right. So, so I like to learn from different people, different skills, but what I learned also was don't try to be someone you're not. Don't just do what someone else tells you they think you should do. Process that. If it's true, do it, but don't do it if it's not true, because at least if you fail, it's your failure. You're not someone else's failure, right? So listen and learn, but do in your heart what you think is the right thing to do, and you'll be right most of the time. And you, you talked about there's no one specific mentor, but you know people who focus on the behaviors, people who focus on investing in their people and improving their skill sets and focus on coaching, typically were the recipient of good coaching somewhere along the way. Can you talk about a time anywhere in your career, you can go anywhere with this, but where you were the recipient of this coaching, whether you loved getting it or not at the time, you know, that, that, that's irrelevant. But it, it, when you look back on it, you're like, wow, that, I was coached really well in that situation. Yeah, no, I, I definitely have situational coaching experiences. 
probably the first sale I ever lost. Uh, I came out of a sales tra training program uh, and the sales trainer went, would go out with each of the salespeople for, you know, a few calls. And so I, I brought him the one that was a closing call. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, I went through the whole thing and it was great. And, and customer said, look, Mark, you know, you've really made a good impression, blah, blah, blah. I think highly of you and your product. But let me think about it for a bit. I just like to you know, noodle on it and decide, you know, and I'll get back to you. So I said, okay, no problem. You know, you think on it. So we got on the call and this guy, Bill, Ho Bill Hoffman, never forget him, long time ago. He said, Mark, you know, you know, that's a great call. You did a great job. Just really good. Uh, really, you know, whatever. And he said, you know, what I've learned from you is you're a nice guy. Like, you're a really nice guy, right? And and so he asked for some time, and being the nice guy that you are, you let him off the hook and said, yeah, sure, you know, go ahead and, and think about it. He said, I guarantee you, he will never call you again, and you'll lose that sale. <laughs> and I said, there's no way, Bill, like, that guy loved it. He's going to buy for sure. So, of course, a week goes by, he never calls, he buys someone else's product, and Bill's message to me was, look, you know, you know, your parents raised you to be a nice guy, and it's okay to be a nice guy most of the time, but sometimes... You just have to be insistent about things. You have to, you have to close. And you're going to make someone feel uncomfortable. And that's okay. Because you either choose between, from time to time, making someone feel uncomfortable or not being a very successful salesperson. And that was like week one on my first sales job. And I never forgot. I lost the darn sale. And I learned. I mean, like he said, Mark, you've earned the right for the business. Ask for it. Right? So that was my big aha moment. And so it changes your character a little bit too, right? It's not just about a skill. It's about who you are as a person. And you have right. to make the choice of, do you want to do that or not? And I'm not faulting anybody for saying, no, I just want to be a nice guy all the time. No problem. Just don't get into sales. Do something else that you know is more suited to the person that you want to be. But I was determined to be successful and make the changes I needed to. Yeah, and I've, I've, that's a... That's a fantastic story. Uh, our friend Mike Myers would, uh, you know, he would be, he'd be very proud. It's a think it over, <laughs> think, think it over is a no. Yeah, uh, they're yeah. not calling you back. They're not um, calling you back. Yeah, I, I had somebody tell me one time, ah, yeah, you you know, your inability to take action on this situation that we've talked about before. It's it's clear that you're a really nice guy, but that doesn't mean you're a good leader. Right. And I was like, Bzz. You know, yeah. pearls of wisdom no, fight but, in the form but, but of bullets. The your, but the original question, thank goodness I was and you were the lucky recipient of a thoughtful person who said what they said to us. Like it would be easier to say, hey, hope for the best, Mark. But he didn't. He took a harder road. And coaching, you know, I mean, I think if you're honest and transparent and sincere, you can give really hard advice to people, Right. Um, and these difficult conversations are what shape all of us. So I've been the recipient and I've, I've had lots of difficult conversations that have paid off handsomely for that person. So I was going to ask you the, the final question is, do you have some advice for those, you know, people that are new to sales management, you know, new frontline yes. managers, would it be along this line or, you know, or something else? Well, well you, you know, you there's, there's so much I could say, but here's the one thing I've said that, that sort of. I thought about in my career is when you're a new sales manager, okay, you don't have a lot of the skills. How could you? You haven't done the job, right? So right. don't worry about that. Like just you just take it on as a lifelong passion. So what I what I kind of akin it to is 
you're like a like a carpenter with a toolbox. So you're a new sales manager. You open your toolbox of skills, and it's empty. You don't have any sales management skills because you haven't done it. Now you got salesperson skills, which are good, but that's not your job anymore. Your job is now a first line sales manager. It's a different job. It requires different skills. So that's number one. If you don't recognize that, it's hard from the beginning. Then you open up the toolbox and realize you got no nothing in it. Well, you got to start filling that toolbox with tools. Tools like, you know, our friend Mike Myers, like how do the when you're coaching a salesperson, how did the call end? What's the next step? Skip the story. Okay, that's a tool. Put it in the box, right? And over time, that box will fill with tools. And that what I have and you will have over time is when you see a problem, you'll open your toolbox and you'll know what tool to pull out to solve that problem. And you'll have a lot of tools to choose from. So think about yourself as accumulating skills, accumulating tools that you'll use, but you'll use it in an intelligent way that in the moment. It's not a formula. It's a toolbox and you're a, you're a skilled professional. Well, well, um, Mark, we've covered a lot of ground and I think that is a great place to leave it. Uh, we took away some, some great nuggets focusing on behaviors, not results. Um, you know, lifelong learners are lifelong performers and the importance of building your toolbox, starting with it, sometimes being empty and that's okay. So I, look, I really appreciate you investing some time today. I know we had some technical difficulties, so I appreciate you hanging in there with me. Yeah, no, it's fun, Matt. It's always a pleasure connecting with you and, uh, and I enjoyed our conversation. So thanks a lot. Awesome. Um, and thanks again. And to our coach to scale community, if you're tuning in and you've made it this far, first of all, thanks for listening. Second of all, it would mean a lot if you could leave a comment, a rating, wherever you're consuming the podcast, whether it's on uh, Spotify um, or Apple Podcasts, or if you're watching the full video on YouTube, let us know what you think. Uh, We'd love to hear from you and it helps the show grow. And with that, it's been a pleasure to host this conversation on behalf of Coach to Scale. And until next time, remember, coach them if you want to keep them. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Coach to Scale, How Modern Leaders Build Coaching Cultures. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at coachem.io. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-M dot I-O. And follow us on Twitter at Coachem Now. See you all next week. Thanks for joining. And remember, coach them if you want to keep them.